0: But we are in this series, and I get the pleasure of winding up the series, Paradox. Now, about three or four weeks ago, I knew I was going to preach today. So this has been on my heart and on my mind for a while. And uh, when Pastor Brandon told me what what portion of Romans I'd be going through, because if you haven't figured it out yet, we're just tracking chapter by chapter through the book of Romans, right? So we've gone all the way through chapter 10. Chapters 1 through 8 are really foundational. That's why we called this series Crux. It's very foundational. It talks so much about grace. It's a very easy chunk of Romans to get through. And then 9, 10, and 11 get into some more deep theological stuff to do with Israel and how how they're going to get reconciled. And quite frankly, I think chapter 11 is the most difficult one. And Pastor Brandon gave me that one and said, peace. I'll be on vacation. Have fun. And so I've been chewing on this for a while. And I don't know if you guys know this, if you've been studying the Bible or not, if you do this like I do. But when I, have, when I am working on something, man, my, my study gets moved around. All of a sudden, I'm looking at things, and I'm seeing the things that I'm going to be preaching about show up in the weirdest places. So it's very strange that all of a sudden, the last couple of weeks, I've been talking and preaching and reading a lot about this stuff that I'm going to talk about this morning. And, and we're going to start by saying this. That the beautiful paradox of life in Christ is that he makes the impossible possible. And that's our primary paradox. Because one thing I want to get clear about this word paradox. The, the word paradox simply means something that appears to be untrue or contradictory that is in fact true. So sometimes we get hung up on this idea that a paradox is contradictory. No, it only appears contradictory. It seems, And sometimes up close, you get a notion that what you're saying, is, man, those things don't make sense. And then you have to get some perspective and back out a little bit. And suddenly you know, oh, those things actually do. It's like better to give than to receive, right? So in the book of Matthew 19, chapter 19, verse 26, Jesus has just gotten finished talking to the rich young ruler, telling him what he's got to do to be saved, Right? I don't know if you know the story or not. He says, what do I do? He says, keep my commandments. The guy says, I've done all these things. He's kind of arrogant. And Jesus tells him to give everything away to the poor and come follow him. And he just, he simply can't do it. And on the heels of that, his disciples ask him, well, man, who can be saved then? And Jesus' response, says, for mortals it's impossible, but for God all things are possible. And this is our primary paradox that we live under, is that the impossible, as though it appears to man, is not impossible. And the second it becomes possible, then it's no longer impossible, and there we have that circular reasoning, right? And so when we say paradox, we're not saying things that are actually contradictory. We're saying things that appear to be contradictory. But man, with God, how many times in your life have you said those two words, but God? I tell you what, in the last year or so, my family's had lots of opportunities to say, but God. Amen. We have faced challenges I never in my lifetime thought I would face. I have been nearly crushed, bent, but not broken, as the word says. And over and over and over again through the struggles, we have heard the words, but God. We've heard doctors give us bad reports, and we said, but you don't know my God. And we've heard people tell us things, and we're like, no, 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 but. So here's the deal. God makes things possible that appear to be impossible. And with God, all things are possible. And I was reading this last week. there's a guy who lived in the third and the fourth century. His name is Athanasius. And I found this quote by him to be very, very interesting. In his book called On the Incarnation, he writes this. The things which they as men rule out as impossible, he plainly shows to be possible. That which they deride as unfitting, his goodness makes most fit. And things which these wiseacres laugh at as human, he, by his inherent might, declares divine. Thus, by what seems his utter poverty and weakness on the cross, he overturns the pomp and parade of idols and quietly and hiddenly wins over the mockers and unbelievers to recognize him as God. This is Athanasius, the 20th bishop of Alexandria, who says this, by what appears to be Christ's weakness on the cross, he overturns the powers of death, sin, hell, and the grave right? That's the paradox. This Christian life we live is not full of paradoxes. The Christian life we live is itself a paradox. Think about this. In Christ, weakness is strength. Poverty is wealth. Giving is receiving. Death is life because we're the strongest when we're weak and we're dependent upon him. And we're the wealthiest when we utterly and totally rely upon him and his riches. And we are the most able to receive when we give generously and we hold things loosely. And we are most alive in him when we recognize that we have died with him. And the life that we live now is not our own, but the life of the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for us. How, how amazing is that? But, but tell that to somebody who's not a believer and they'll look at you cross-eyed, won't they? To die is to gain. Really? That's not That's not the way. It's not the way we've been taught. It's certainly not the way our culture teaches it. We are told to accumulate, to get, to hold on, to work, to do. And Jesus has told us, everything is yours. Relax, rest. And it's so difficult for us. But I'm telling you right now, if you will get that settled in your heart, that the work that you think you have to do has already been done, then we can get about, We can get on with the business of, of being Christ followers and stop with all of the other stuff that we put our energies into. Amen. Amen. All right, so the greatest victory of the cross is this. In Christ, those who were once outsiders are now insiders. How many of you guys know what it's like to be an outsider? Can I tell you from personal experience, it stinks. I'll tell you a funny story, but still kind of, I don't know. I got, we, we were talking about games that we played as kids a while back, and uh, p- people have sort of visceral reactions about dodgeball. Ah, not so much. I didn't mind that. What I really, really, really hated was musical chairs. (laughs) I hate musical chairs. I hate it. Why? It's the ultimate game of exclusion, isn't it? Let me put 12 or 13 or 14. Now, I grew up in Northern California, and it rains in Northern California all the time. It seemed like when I was a kid, it rained two, three hundred days a year, okay? So we had, you know, inside recess a whole lot. And inside recess, if you've got, how many teachers in the house? If you guys know, inside recess is the worst, right? You get 50, 100 kids, I don't know how many they are, in a cafeteria or a cafeteria, or whatever you call it these days, and man, they just bounce off the walls, it's crazy. But then, and then, let's make it worse, let's put them in a situation where they've got to fight for a spot, and we know one kid's getting kicked out. Tell me, that just doesn't teach a whole bunch of wacko values to our kids. And I'm telling you what, as athletic as Pastor, Pastor Brandon Clark is not, I'm worse, I was an asthmatic, okay, a little chubby. I was that kid, right? Pasty, what all those things. I was that. And so the music would start, and I just would sit down. I'm like, I'm not even gonna try. I would sit on the floor, I'm like. And I'm telling you, I know it sounds funny, and it is funny, but I'm still crushed. No I'm kidding. But this is what we do. This is we play this game in our life all the time. We make lists in out. Good, bad, moral, immoral, gay, straight, black, white. I don't care. We love labels, don't we? Why? Because if I can label somebody, I don't really have to deal with them. And you know what? The book of Ephesians talks about this. Look at this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. We're pretty much going to run through Romans after this. But I like the way Ephesians put this. And I'm also going to be camped out in the message version. So... For some continuity's sake and for the the way that I think that Eugene Peterson translates some of this is really good. He says, don't take any of this for granted. Talking to the Gentiles now, okay? It was only yesterday that you, outsiders to God's ways, had no idea of any of this. You didn't know the first thing about the way God works. You hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel, hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. Now because of Christ dying that death, shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are in on everything. This is the ultimate victory of the cross, isn't it? This is to take the people who were once, the one, one translation says, you were once outside the promises of God. You were godless. You, were, you didn't have the promise of the covenant. You didn't have the law. You had nothing. You were a bunch of pagans doing what you do. And all of a sudden now, man, you're on the inside. The, the scandal of the cross is not so much that there's grace. Because the Jews understand grace. Don't, 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 don't misunderstand the Jewish understand. Mercy and grace are concepts that are not foreign. But you know what the scandal of the cross was? That God was going to show grace and mercy to the dirty Gentiles. That's one thing they could not get over. They couldn't do it. And the word scandal in the Greek is not the thing that we think of as the scandal in in English. It's the word scandalizo. We get this word scandal on either one of those two. And we get this word in English of scandal, and it's like something... Messy, right? Somebody had a moral failing to end up on the cover of the National Enquirer. That's a scandal. The word scandalon in the Greek literally means a stumbling block or a snare or a trap. And so the snare and the trap that was Jesus was this idea they couldn't get past that Christ had come, not for only the Jewish nation, but he'd come for everybody. And this inclusion, I'm telling you right now, it is vast, it is enormous, it is awesome, and it will trip you up if you're stuck on the idea of labels. It will absolutely become a stumbling block to you. If you cannot envision that person in heaven with you, then there's an issue of a heart. Amen? We've got to get past this. The Jewish people were chosen, and some of the stuff I've read, even from Jewish literature, says... You know, they weren't chosen so much because they were special. God chose them to be a light to the world. God gave Abraham a covenant, and that covenant that he gave Abraham said that he would be the father of many nations and that all the nations of the world would be blessed by him. And if we fast forward a little over 2,000 years between Abraham and Jesus, and we don't see that happening with Israel, do we? We see them bogged down in legalism. We see them bogged down in the process of of labeling and marginalizing. They've got people who are in and people who are out. They've got these religious police that will come around and make sure you're doing the right thing and you're sacrificing the right way. It wasn't exactly, I don't think, what God envisioned that the Jewish people would do with their specialness. Amen? They were supposed to be a light of the world. The Jews lived in that specialness, and they didn't really use it to bless the world. And by the time Jesus shows up, it's kind of a grim scene. It's kind of weird. And he has to go around. You'll understand, remember, that Jesus had the harshest words, not for people who were stuck in sin. Right? The Pharisees would bring somebody, some poor woman they caught in adultery, and they'd want him to say something harsh to her and condemn her, and he would say, uh, no, I'm good. I don't condemn you, right? and he would challenge the status quo of what these folks would do, and he had the harshest words for those who thought they were in. And here is the scandal on the cross. Again, those on the outside get to come in. It's honestly unbelievable. And if you know, one more thing to think about, too. Jesus healing miracles had a real particular social component to them. If you look at the world of Second Temple Judaism, you'll see that if you had leprosy, You weren't just sick, you were excluded, weren't you? Man, you had to sit outside the gates, you had to you had to beg someplace else. You couldn't come to the temple for worship. If you were blind, if you had leprosy, if you were any one of these things, as Jesus came and healed people, he didn't just heal their bodies, he restored them to their communities. He restored their social standing. He took those barriers down that would keep them excluded from even their temple worship and said, hey, no more, you're healed. There's such an awesome revelation in this for us. That as believers in Christ, we get to tear those barriers down with him. We get to live in the fact that he loves me and you and her and him all the same. Amen? Amen? Amen. The second point I want to make this is this is that the way out, if you fill out your fill in the blanks, this is one of them. The way out is the way in. The way out is the way in. Now we're going to tra- start tracking the book of Romans, chapter 11, and I'll explain what I mean by that. It says this it says the next question is and this is Paul again talking to the church in Rome, saying, Are they, the Jews, down for the count? Are they out of this for good? And the answer is a clear cut no. Because ironically, when they walked out, they left the door open and the outsiders walked in. But the next thing you know, the Jews were starting to wonder if perhaps they had walked out on a good thing. And now if their leaving triggered this worldwide coming of non-Jewish outsiders to God's kingdom, just imagine the effect of their coming back. What a homecoming. Woo, think about that for a second. So here's the deal. Jesus comes to who? The Jews. Why? Pastor Brandon talked about this last week. Why did he come to them? Because they were looking for him. They expected him, and so he comes prim- primarily and principally to the nation of Israel, and they reject him. If they don't reject him, I'm not sure how this thing goes for us, because their rejection is what opens the door for the Gentile. And if you are not of Jewish descent, and that's probably most of us in this room, guess what? You are a Gentile. Not only that, probably a dirty Gentile. So we are all dirty Gentiles, right? And somehow or other, their rejection of the gospel means you and I get in on it. But you know what? They're not out. So check that out. Think about that for a paradox. They reject. We get in. We don't switch places, right? We don't get to go, well, now we're on the inside and you're on the outside. No, but the way out became the way in for us. And look what he says. If they're leaving triggered... This worldwide coming of non-Jewish outsiders to God's kingdom. Just imagine the effect of their coming back. I want you to think for a second about the the prodigal son story. And I've thought about this a lot the last week or two. And I've always taken that story and I've, I've individualized it and thought it was about me. And it is. It's about you. It's about me. So we have this idea that there's a younger brother who's gone astray, who's done some stuff. And all of a sudden, he comes home and the father embraces him, Right? But what does the older brother do? Stands outside the party with his arms crossed and refuses to come in. Complains to dad that, you know what? You throw this nasty little brother of mine a party. I've been here doing the right thing, saying the right stuff, working hard. You treat me like a slave. Can you just kind of picture the nation of Israel doing this? This is what I see. The nation of Israel standing outside saying, we're the chosen people. You, what are you doing letting them in? We've always been here. We went through the desert with you, right? And then God says, man, but if you just uncross your arms and come into the party, it's a, it's a good party. You should come in. And I think there's going to be a time when that's going to happen. In fact, Paul prophesies that the nation of Israel will come fully in. And what a homecoming it will be. It'll be a party. But they have got to uncross their arms, just like you and I do, right? Sometimes we get in that place of thinking, well, you know, why does God show mercy and grace to this person who I know did X, Y, Z, A, B, C? And I can name some stuff, right? And we know that person's hurt people and done bad things. And all of a sudden, we're asked to look at them through the eyes of Jesus and see that he would go to the cross today, right now, for that person who we don't like. And this grace thing is super easy when we get to extend it to people that are like us. And it's super easy when we get it to extend it to people that we like. And man, it gets really hard when we have to go out and extend it to people who've hurt us, or extend it to people who don't feel like they deserve it, or don't fit our mold of what they should be, or don't fit inside our little boxes. Man, it gets really hard. But the way of Jesus is difficult, isn't it? The way of Jesus calls us to reach out of ourselves. The way out is the way back in. Romans 11, 30 through 31, I'm sorry, I just totally skipped over a point. My bad. Brandon doesn't do that. Second-rate preacher. Right. My next point is this. The way out is the way back is. Okay, and Romans 11:30 30 31 says this. There was a time not so long ago when you, again the Gentiles, were on the outs with God. But then the Jews slammed the door on them and things opened up for you. Now they're on the outs. But with the door held wide open for you, they have a way back in. Oh, think about it. of you guys have kids who slam doors in your house. Is it like the bane of your existence? All right, we could talk about pet peeves later. My pet peeve, I've got a big, huge, heavy door in my house. It's like solid, I don't know, ash or something. Anyway, it slams and the whole house shakes, right? But here's the deal. I want you to get this picture. They slammed the door on God so hard, boom, that the door slammed back open. And guess what? There's a way back in. Man, there's a lesson for all of us in this, that God doesn't shut the door on us. We can, tr- we can try. We can shut the door on us. But I tell you what, if God doesn't shut the door on people who looked him in the face and said no, why is he going to say no to you? Amen. Why is he going to shut the door in your face? Man, this is awesome stuff. Romans eleven twenty-five through 26. We'll skip up a little bit. And he says this. I want to lay this out on the table as clearly as I can, friends. This is complicated. It would be easy to misinterpret what's going on and arrogantly assume that your royalty and they're just rabble out on their ears for good. But that's not it at all. This hardness on the part of, in, of insider Israel towards God is temporary. Its effect is to open things up for all the outsiders so that we end up with a full house. Before it's all over, there will be a complete Israel. And a complete Israel, by the way, will include everybody. Yeah. Think about this. Pastor Brennan talked last week or the week before about the Paul says that not everyone born of Abraham is of Abraham, right? So this notion of a complete Israel is not what we've concocted in our brains sometimes of this nation state of Israel that's somewhere over in the Middle East. This is a spiritual Israel. And we've all been, as Gentiles grafted into the family, just like you would graft a branch onto a tree, and all of a sudden, man, this olive tree is producing some other kind of fruit, because we've grafted stuff into it. We've been grafted in to the family of God, but we can't look down on the roots, can we? We've been grafted into the family. We don't get to go, well, fine, we're better than you now, because, man, we saw Jesus, and you did it. Um, We get the benefits of having recognized Jesus, right? There's no special little club we're in because we saw something they didn't see. They'll see it. They will. And there will be a complete Israel. It's pretty amazing. Next point. There really is no such thing as insiders or outsiders. So I've taken you through three points, talking about in and out, in and out, in and out. And what I really want, I'm just I'm leading you one step at a time towards the fact that, honestly, this whole construct of inside and outside is just garbage. It's just absolutely false. It's something that's a human construct. We like it. We like the idea that we can be special or set apart, but guess what? Paul says, uh, no such thing. There's no such thing. Romans eleven thirteen 13 through 14 says this, but I don't wanna go on about them, the Jews. It's you, the outsiders that I'm concerned with now because my personal assignment is focused on, and Paul says, so-called outsiders. I make as much of this as I can when I'm among my Israelite kin the so called insiders, hoping they'll realize what they're missing and want to get in on what God is doing. I like that, that this translation uses that so called. Why? Because they're not really outside. We're not really inside. All these barriers we've constructed, all these divisions we've made, they're really, really, they're, they're not the heart of God. The heart of God is expressed by Paul in Galatians 3. Chapter 3, verses 28 through 29, and Paul says, In Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew. Slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. That is, we are all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. Also, since you are Christ's family, then you are Abraham's famous descendant, heirs according to the covenant promises. This idea that we get grafted in to the family of God, and we get in on the covenants, means we get in on the blessing of the covenants. Amen? That's good stuff. We don't get grafted in, by the way, though, all y'all grace people in the room, we don't get grafted into the obligation of the covenant. That's important that we understand that. We're not saying, hey, we've grafted you into the family of God, and now here's this list of rules you have to keep, because that's what we have. That's not what this is at all. We're not obligated to the law. Paul says that over and over and over and over again, that we're not under law, but we're under grace. It's so a whole different thing. But we are certainly grafted in and recipients of the blessings of the covenant of Abraham, that we can be a blessing to many nations, that we can be his, he can be our God and we can be his. Amen? That's, that's amazing. But there is this notion, again, we've got to get past this idea of the in and the out and the Jew and the Gentile and the slave and the free and whatever other divisions we might come up with because they are just not the heart of God. I like the way 11, uh, Romans 11.33 says it like this. It says, in one way or another, God makes sure that we all experience what it means to be outside so he can personally open the door and welcome us back in. Whew. Again, I ask you guys, how many of you guys have felt what it's like to be on the outside? Wanted to be invited inside. How many times is there like a, I don't know, I really, really like inside jokes. When I'm part of them, right? How many times you've been someplace and you got like maybe it's like you and two other people and those two people like shared this sort of knowing glance and they laugh and they go nothing, nothing. You, you had to be there. <laughs> really? That's mean. We'll talk about it later when I'm not standing right here, right? So we have this thing where we get to go. Hmm, we shared this, you know. You know these guys will all come back from camp, you know, and now they'll share their camp stories, and I'll go well. I, I, I went somewhere, too.
1: <laughs>
0: but, there, but, but this being on the outside thing, I, man, I tell you what, it's a common human experience. And what it should do in us, it should produce in us a sense of empathy for people who are on the outside. Amen. And if the, if, if, if the faith we have in Christ does not propel us into the streets and into the alleys, And into the place where the downtrodden and the marginalized and those who are pushed out, if it doesn't push us there to invite them in, then, man, I don't know what we're doing with it. I don't know. It's not – we didn't do this. We don't have church. So on Sunday morning, we can sit in these chairs and look at each other and say, man, what a good bunch of people we are. If that's all we ever do, man, we should do something else. It should compel us to go find the people who are disconnected from God and show them that reconnection is not that difficult. Celebration Church exists, we say this all the time, what? To help people know God better, help them trust him more. It means we remove as many barriers between somebody unchurched and the church as as humanly possible. We try not to say things that sound weird and make them go, huh. We try to take the the steps and, and make them small and short so they can come in. A lot of churches you go, man, if you don't know the lingo, within the first five minutes you know you're on the outside, don't you? Because you just don't know the, the right words to say and the right things to do, you don't know. We exist, hopefully, to try to take some of those barriers away and help people to reconnect with God. But my last point is this. The takeaway, if you if you read the entire chapter of Romans eleven and all you got what it was, wow, Israel is, is gonna be okay. We miss one vital point. And that's the takeaway of all this for me, which is this God does not give up. Or go back on his promises. He doesn't do it with Israel. He won't do it with you. The Bible says he's no respecter of persons, which means he doesn't differentiate between doesn't he doesn't differentiate between one person. He doesn't have preferential treatment. What he would do for one, he'll do for somebody else. And what he wouldn't do for one, he won't do for somebody else. Does that make sense? So if he would not go back on his promises with Israel, he's not going back on his promises with you. And whatever it is this morning you're believing God for, whatever it is this morning you think that he's promised you, I would encourage you to stand on that promise and have faith that the God who fashioned the universe will not give up on you. Look at what Romans 11, 1 through through 2 says. There's two verses I want to go through. The first one is this. Romans 11, 1 through 2. Does this mean that God is so fed up with Israel that he'll have nothing more to do with them? Hardly. Remember that I, the one writing these things, am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham, out of, the top, out of the tribe of Benjamin, you can't get much more Semitic than that. So we're not talking about repudiation. God has been too long involved with Israel, has too much invested to simply wash his hands of them. And Romans 11:28 28 through 29, from your point of view, as you hear and embrace the good news of the message, it looks like the Jews are God's enemies, but looked at from the long range perspective of God's overall purpose, They remain God's oldest friends. God's gifts and God's call are under full warranty. Never canceled. Never rescinded. Other translations say it like this. They say that the gifts and call of God are without repentance. It says that God does not regret having done them. He doesn't take them back. He doesn't doesn't make promises to you and then later on change his mind. Why is this important? Because we're asking you to trust God. We say it every week. Over and over and over again, we say, man, you, this God is somebody you can trust. You can put your faith in him. How, how could we possibly do that if he changed his mind? And if he promised one thing to somebody and then later on decided it was something different. So he, he makes his promises. He keeps his promises. Amen? I want to I shut this down, but I don't want to leave this opportunity. I, I, I want you to think about something. How many of you guys in this room could use a miracle? That uh, just about everybody, right? I didn't talk this over with Brandon before, but I think we need to do something. Man, I know too many of you guys in this room who are hurting. I know too many of y'all in this, in this place who are, who are dealing with health issues, who are dealing with job issues, who are dealing with stuff. that You just need the hand of God to reach in and help. If nothing else, to give you peace through the process that you're working with him. But I want you to hear something today. As I was studying this out and I was looking at the stuff, I was, I was listening to a sermon by a guy named Francois, whose last name I can't pronounce, so it's not important. <laughs> but he's one of my seminary professors, and I'm listening to one of his talks, and, and he said this, and I, I had to rewind it, and I had to write it down, and I had to underline it, and I had to copy it, and I'm like, and then I knew on Friday, I'm like, i got to share this on Sunday. I want you to hear this. He said, Jesus was not God's desperate move to save a few. The same engineer that engineered the universe and holds the universe and holds everything in place to determine tomorrow morning sunrise, engineered the redemption of his property, his image, and his likeness in human form. At no point, and I want you to hear this, at no point, say at no point. At no point, at no point. At no point did stolen property become owned by the devil. I'm going to say that again because yeah. that will preach. At no point did stolen property become the property of the devil. The Bible says we have a thief who comes to, to steal, kill, and destroy. But guess what? He doesn't get to come along and take something from you, and now it's his. Oh, no, you have all authority to go take it back. Amen. It did not become his property. At no point did the devil become man's parent. He is the father of lies and nothing more. And so here's what I want to do. I want to close this service out like this. Daniel, if you'd come, if you are in a place right now where you need God's touch, or you need God to heal you, you need God to reach into your job situation, I just want you to stand up. And this isn't something we normally do, but if you'd stand up, and if the people next to you, around you, feel comfortable, they'd stand up. And if they would maybe stand with you. I think we need to break some stuff off this morning. I think we need to claim the promises of Jesus this morning. And I think we need to make it known that just because the devil stole something from us doesn't mean he gets to keep it. Amen? If I go down to the police station and find the guy who stole my bike, he doesn't get to say, well, I have it. It's mine. The heck you do. It's got my name on it. Well, guess what? Your healing has your name on it. Amen? Man, your job has your name on it. Your peace, your marriage, all those things that the devil's trying to steal from you, have your name on it. Just go claim it. And it may not happen today or tomorrow, but I promise you one thing. If nothing else, we will have confidence and faith, and we will have peace, knowing that the God who loves you is working. Amen? So let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we come before you this morning on behalf of our brothers and our sisters, and we feel, God, their pain. And Lord God, we grieve with those who grieve and we will celebrate with those who celebrate. But Father, right now we're asking for a touch. Lord God, we're asking for you to reach down. Lord God, we know that your will is wholeness. We know that your will is health, that's prosperity, that it's faith. And Lord God, we right now exercise that faith and say that we understand you purchased our healing, Lord God. Lord God, we understand that you purchased our freedom, Lord God. And Father, as we stand together, united, as we stand arm in arm with those who hurt, as we stand arm in arm with those who feel pain and who feel the pinch, Lord God, we stand in solidarity and say, our God is bigger than our circumstances. Father, we say our God is bigger than the devil who would try to steal from us. Lord, we love you. We give you all the praise. And at this time, also, I want to ask... If you're here this morning and you need to say, Lord Jesus, you are Lord of my life. If you've never done that before, man, what better time than right now to take back what was stolen from you. Amen. Your identity can be restored today. So if you just lift a hand, look me in the eyes, tell me you need to make Jesus Lord of your life this morning. Amen. I see that. see that. Amen. Amen. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. It's the day we become aware of. Of the fact that God has already done the work on our behalf. Amen? The, the thing we have to, got to get our heads around is the fact that we don't have to do anything except step into an awareness that God did everything. Amen? It's His work, not our work. So, church, if you would, we're going to say a prayer together. Again, Pastor Brandon was saying this. He was here. these are not magic words. The, the second you acknowledge God, the second you acknowledge Jesus, man, He's already turned your life inside out. Amen? so we say these as an affirmation. Repeat after me. Father, Father. we thank you, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, for thank you that my life is restored. Father, we pray for your presence and for your Holy Spirit to have his way in us. Father, help us to live for you all the days of our lives. Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, let's give a shout this morning. Man, this is good news. I love it.